Welcome to Sonosphere. We're your hosts. I'm Amy. And I'm Chris. Today, we will feature an interview we recorded in May of 2018 with abstract turntablist and performance artist Maria Chavez and musician Christina Carter. Maria and Christina came to Memphis to perform as part of our ongoing performance series, Sound Observations. It's a collaboration between Sonosphere and Crosstown Arts. In this episode, we will begin with a brief history of the record player and then dive right in to the conversation we had with Maria and Christina. In recent years, vinyl albums have made quite a resurgence. As Forbes reported, after near death in the mid-aughts, vinyl sales surged in 2017 to over $385 million in revenue, and this does not include the used sales of vinyls. How did an invention created for the playback of sound invade the world and change the course of music history? Well, let us start with our first known ventures into sound recording. Edouard Leon Scott de Martinville invented sound recording 20 years before Thomas Edison invented the phonograph. Scott's phonautograph recorded sound and made it both visible and permanent. It was a breakthrough but he did not intend for his phone autograms to be played back. The idea of playing back records wouldn't be generated for another 20 years. The earliest obtained recording is Au Claire de Lune. Listen now. article in the journal Technology and Culture, Patrick Feaster commented on the significance of the recordings. He said, 21st century audiences now prize these recordings as the earliest audible traces of speech and song, and the technical feat of playing back audio that never wanted to be heard has dominated the popular and academic discourse surrounding them. Unfortunately, this fixation on playability has distracted most critics from seeking to understand the phonoautograms on their own terms, as visible, archivable documents implicated in motives and uses to which playback was irrelevant. Thomas Edison is credited with the invention of the phonograph. Edison monopolized this field, as he did with the light bulb. Thomas Edison was hard of hearing, and he is quoted as saying, I have not heard a bird sing since I was 12 years old, thus motivating Edison to create the phonograph. Thomas H. Green described the phonograph in Mixmag as, Stylus recorded sounds into thick tinfoil wrapped around a cylinder, and the first tune a needle ever dropped onto was John Crusey shouting, Mary had a little lamb. Within five years, Alexander Graham Bell, inventor of the telephone, had come up with a graphophone, which was replaced with, which replaced the foil with wax and resulted in the higher quality sound reproduction. The record player was taking its first baby steps. The original recording of Crusey reciting Mary Had a Little Lamb is lost, but listen to the recreation by Thomas Edison from 1927. The uh, first words I spoke in the original phonograph. 
A little piece of practical poetry. Mary had a little lamb, its fleece was white as snow, and everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. Ever practical and visionary, Edison offered the following possible future uses for the phonograph in the North American Review. Letter writing and all kinds of dictation without the aid of a stenographer. Phonographic books, which will speak to blind people without effort on their part. Sort of like your phone reading your emails. The teaching of elocution. Reproduction of music. The family record, a registry of sayings by members of a family in their own voices and of the last words of dying persons. In music boxes and toys. Clocks that should announce inarticulate speech, the time for going home and going to meals. The preservation of languages by exact reproduction of the manner of pronouncing them. Educational purposes, such as preserving the explanations made by a teacher so that the pupil can refer to them at any moment, and spelling or other lessons placed upon the phonograph for convenience in committing to memory. Connection with the telephone, so as to make the instrument an auxiliary in the transmission of permanent and invaluable records, instead of being the recipient of momentary and fleeting communication, your conversations are now recorded forever. (laughs) At the same time, Emil Berliner was improving upon the playback cylinder. After some tinkering with many different substances, Berliner landed on zinc. Again, after much trial and error, Berliner found that coating the zinc with a beeswax and cold cold gasoline mixture allowed for the stylus to penetrate the coating evenly, making fine lines to bring about vibrations. After an acid bath, the disc's lines were etched into grooves, leaving the rest of the disc untouched. With the vibrations fixed into the zinc, it was now ready to be placed on a turntable and played using a steel stylus. This was how the earliest discs were made. Later, vulcanite replaced zinc, which was then replaced by shellac. And, fun fact, shellac was derived from an Asian beetle. Berliner saw his invention as the future of entertainment and music. Berliner dubbed this invention the gramophone. His invention hit the market in 1894. And a whole lot of people wanted to copy his gramophone, right? Oh yeah, they called them the Wonder Machine, the Vitaphone, the Zonophone. All of these essentially were exact replicas of Berliner's invention. But years of litigation did not help Berliner to claim copyright infringement. And this ultimately led to his business failing. I think my favorite is Wonder Machine. Easily, but I don't know. The Zonophone is a nice, <laughs> has a nice ring to it. Berliner's contribution faded and is less known now. The very word gramophone was eventually dropped in this country in favor of phonograph. Another fun fact, the word Grammy was derived from the word gramophone. Nice. Somebody remembers or remembered. Anna Jones was referred to as the first lady of the phonograph. With her clear, strong voice and excellent diction, Jones was one of the first women to successfully record on commercial cylinders and discs. Her repertoire included dialect sketches, conversational duets, and comic songs. Here is Down on the Farm, recorded by Ada Jones in 1906. Down on the Farm by Ada Jones and Lynn Spencer, Edison Records. Well, husband, I do hope our little belongings bring enough to satisfy old Skinner's moggy. Yes. 
dreams this old clock should have stopped. Wayne did his. It was Mother's wedding present, you know. Yes, was about the only striking gift of your mother's wanted. Is it going? Oh, yes, it's going. And time old Skinner gets it under the hammer, it'll be gone. Oh, how can you joke when we're in such trouble? Well, why, there wouldn't have been any trouble if Zeke hadn't left the farm. As it is, we've lost everything. No, not everything has. We've got each other. That's true, wife. Come, it's our last day in the old home. Start down and sing me my little favorite song. I'll try, Hez. When your eyes so bright have lost their light, your voice so dear, no longer here, to break my heart if we should part. For I've grown so used to you. There, there. All these folks are coming. Amy and I had the pleasure to talk to Maria Chavez, who is one of the more unconventional turntablists of this generation. She uses broken vinyl records to create sound driven by chance. We'll continue the evolution of this use of record players in generating music and sound next week. Now, we'll hear our interview with Maria and musician Christina Carter on their performance here in Crosstown. Chavez and Christina Carter. They came in town in Memphis to play at the Crosstown Concourse. This, this is a huge million square foot just about uh, building. Um, it's the old Sears Roebuck and Company uh, Merchandise Distribution Center and it's been completely redone and their performance there was site specific for that one space. In collaboration with Crosstown Arts, Sonosphere has put together a sound observations series. And I would like to start off by having each of you like introduce yourself and kind of give a, a quick background and then we'll get into the performance. My name is Maria Chavez. I'm, I'm a sound artist, abstract turntablist, and DJ. Um, based in New York City for about 13 years, but originally from Peru, Austin, and Houston, mainly Houston, where I met Christina um, and through this, the avant-garde scene in, in Houston, we were able to uh, collaborate and go on tour together early on in my career. And so I wanted to bring her here to Memphis after 17 years of not playing together. I wanted to bring her back and see what, what we've been up to and see how we've changed. And it really doesn't feel like, feels very easy, but. Yeah, that's it, yeah. 
and guitar mostly for the past 27 years or so and for the past five mostly concentrating on voice. So I guess we can start off um, and talk about some of the history, how you got started, each of you, and, and what you're doing and um, then we'll move into why you're here today. turntabling and vinyl like what what really drew you to that well I, I was actually telling this story to Christina the other day um, which I didn't realize you didn't know how I how I met Dave or so um, ultimately I was a DJ since I was a teenager since I was in high school and so by the time I was 20 21 I was pretty seasoned professional getting very bored with the scene um, and started uh, getting interested in improvised music and free jazz, but I just didn't really understand it, didn't really know what what it was about. And so um, I went to a free jazz show, Joe McPhee and Dominique Duval, and uh, it was hosted by this man, David Dove, who turned out to be become my first mentor. And he pretty much taught me everything I know about improvisation and sound art and sound in music history. and um, or 20th century contemporary music history, I should say. Um, and so he was the one that suggested that uh, I bring a turntable to an improvisation class that he was teaching. And at the time, he was teaching a lot of things focused on Pauline Oliveros's deep listening practices. But I didn't even know who she was. So when I was first improvising with this group, for about four years, we were all improvising together like three or four times a, a week. So it was a very um, intensive group of improvisers, me with one turntable and other people with upright upright bass, guitar, pedal steel guitar. Um, and then Christina would come visit from Austin and um, also perform and play and improvise with us as well. So um, it was a really interesting scene to come out of. And then I left for New York City and just started performing professionally, now internationally. I guess, you know, from a small child, music was pretty much one of the most important things to me. Um, that just continued. And then when I was in Houston in this um, sort of social art music scene that Maria's talking about, um, 
it was just normal. It was organic, normal, natural for uh, you to be an audience member and become a participant. Um, so I just started playing music with Tom Carter, who was my friend at the time. Um, and we started playing together. And that's really the first experience that I had with doing music seriously. And that's just continued. It's just gone on since that time. Tom and I still play together as Charles Lombardies. Mm -hmm. And uh, it just sort of happened really naturally. So uh, talking about the performance the other night, when um, w what what inspired you uh, to use the space in the way you did? And if you want to talk a little bit about how you know how it was executed, I guess. Still trying to figure out what to call it. Um, site specific improvised performance, but within resonant bodies somehow somehow I, I was I was calling it resonant opera the other day but I don't think that's gonna stick let's to be determined um, but we were walking around the space this building is extreme like it's just everything about it is just so overwhelming and it's in, in, a, in, a, in a really interesting way I'm, I'm thinking a lot about resonance in this huge space and today we were having a brunch at the the cafe by the entrance and down the hallway far far at the other end there was a little kid just screaming but it was traveling through this hallway to us in such a beautiful way I was like wow this building is amazing like this is as a filter as a reverb filter it's an amazing room you know <laughs> you guys got to record it and use it as a as an effect because it's a really special space and so when you guys sent me pictures of Crosstown um, <clears throat> i wasn't really sh sure what to make of this bright red thing in the center of the space. I was like, wait, can you walk in there? Like, is it a, a fence? Or... And so when I got here and I saw that it was a stairwell, that's a spiral stairwell that makes this perfect, like, imaginary cone shape, I was just like, are you kidding me with this untethered, like, ceiling, that skylight that goes, like, all the way eight floors up, you know? So, of course, the resonance in the space is going to be huge and... So when we were walking around the building trying to get to know the space a little bit better, I just I just wanted to utilize that because it's the central piece of of this space. I mean, clearly it's it's part of it. And so if the building is offering me an opportunity to utilize it, then I don't want it, the work that we present to be just solely about our performances as improvisers. I would want it to also reflect the space and really take into consideration what this whole building is really about sonically within the, the area that we can all hear it in. Hi, Memphis. <laughs> it's 
my first time here performing uh, in Tennessee, and I'm so honored to be here at Crosstown. Thank you, Sonosphere, for bringing myself and Christina here. I'm not sure if you see beautiful Christina over there. Christina and I uh, first met at the very beginning of my career in 2000, 2001, and she one day, I was telling her as a young a sound artist and performer, I said, I never toured before, and I've always wanted to try, but I don't really know how. And then we went and we saw a show, and then afterwards she looked at me pensively and she said, let's go on tour. And so she took me on my very first East Coast tour in 2001, where we traveled from Houston all the way up to Montreal and back down, and pretty much taught me everything I know about touring now and has helped just shape my career just by watching her. Can you describe your um, experience as, you know, and when the piece began, you started at the bottom of this spiral staircase. How, what was your experience starting out there with the sound and, and with the sound? And were, were you responding necessarily to your own voice in the way that it was coming back, I guess? Or, you know, like how you were hearing it to improvise with definitely responding to the way what I was hearing my voice do because that's what I oh that's what I always do um, that's just that's that's it basically there it was just it was really intense uh, it was amazing how clearly I could hear everything I, originally, I was supposed to start at the very bottom of the staircase, but we had to. I wonder now, though, I know, me too. if we could have done it. There was a there was a restaurant, and there was a lot of people down there, and so we we modified it and started at the place that we thought we're gonna was gonna be the second um, stopping point on the landing. I noticed some people came up the stairs and were confused about what was going on for a second. And yeah. then it was like, oh, mm -hmm. let's go back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, that was nice that people actually lit, watched and followed and were paying attention. That was such a special moment when everyone got up from their seats and rushed to the stairwell to look down at her. That was, to me, I had this dream years ago um, it was like a, an abandoned train station turned into like a residency or something, and there's like rooms in there. And I was in my, one of my rooms in this thing, and uh, I heard a band playing outside. And so I walked out and went to like the side of the train station or something, and down below was this op like open queue, but there was a band down there 
playing up and everybody was looking down and the music was coming up at the people. And ever since then, I was just like, I, I want to flip this around. That, that, that to me was what it was telling me is like, let's do the opposite now and really just try to think about the performance in a different way where it's not you on a stage over the people, let the people come over to you. And so when, when the people ran over to look down at Christina performing, I got chills. I was just like, this is exactly what, what, I, what I dreamt about. And, so I, and I didn't even think about that mm-hmm. when, we were, when we were planning it or talking about it. I mean, I was pretty confident that people were going to be able to hear me clearly. But when the event actually started and there was other, other stuff going on, like a dinner downstairs and other people that we hadn't considered, you know, there's going to be more people in this building besides just the audience. Um, then I had a tiny bit of doubt, but then once I started, I knew that, and I could hear Maria perfectly. Mm-hmm. So it was just, it was really uh, satisfying. There's something going on at most times of the day, I guess. They have this one long speaker, Meyer Sound speaker, on one column in the main atrium of the entrance of this building. They were playing music all night long because we were out hanging out in the ba- in that oh, really? little outdoor area, and even through the outdoor speakers, they're playing like jazz. And then in the middle of it, I guess it's satellite radio. It started to scan all the radio stations and only play like the first intro of all these songs. We that's it, but nobody nobody was around, and we were like, we don't know something. I mean, we were hearing something, and and the thing is, it's just one speaker for this huge atrium, and it works. Mm-hmm. It's loud because of the shape of it, because it pushes everything up. The dynamics, there's concrete everywhere. It's just bouncing off the walls. It's an amazing building. Well, and uh, Crosstown hosts uh, this one guy occasionally that does what he uh, calls bomb shelter radio. And it's uh, he has his like, little trailer set up, but he, set, he sets up in that atrium and plays a whole mix of tunes. But it's like one of those times where it's like always really enjoyable to go into the atrium when he's there. Um, but yeah, so they, they like to utilize it for the most part. Like we've seen a performance with Iceberg, what I was mm-hmm. telling you about, that they per, uh, perform four pieces in the, uh, that little stage area next to the stairs. Right, right. And um, then like uh, Jenny Davis and um, the other uh, clarinet player played against each other, like towards each other on the top. Uh, floor mm-hmm. and it was it, it was yeah. just interesting because that was the first time I saw that space mm-hmm. utilized for what I thought that it it would be and what you were thinking. Yeah.
1,000 cycle minimum level. Normal, normal level. Normal level. So I want to move back, you know, in, into the performance some more. Um, towards the end, you brought up a couple of kids and started kind of improvising with them. Copper and Clary. The most patient kids in the world. <laughs> well, Copper was crying. She was really bored. Yeah, this is true. She was that. being a sweetie. I, I felt really bad for her because she was tired too. Yeah. I was like, it's, it's late. Yeah. The, the one thing. Uh, she asked me, she was like, I just wonder which one of us gets to go first, who yeah. she's going to call first. And I was like, isn't that between you two? And she was like, no, she'll call somebody. Really? Did she? <laughs> well, Clary has, is autistic. So, and uh, her mom was really great communicating that information to me. I really appreciated that. Because there, there is definitely a form of communication that you have to change when it comes to teaching. And I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that I have the experience now to be able to work. She, I mean, she, she was like 11, I think, and Copper was six. So they're very sweet. Um, and I think they were coming in to the thing thinking DJ stuff, like DJ, DJ. And they kept doing the little hand gesture, like, Rick and you know. And I thought she was being a ninja. Was she, no, she, she was doing oh. this. She's going, woo woo woo. Like <laughs> With her hand on her ear, like, yeah, like, like a DJ, you know, the national, international so symbol space. for DJ, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I really, I really think that ultimately they left with this new understanding of what this, what this machine can do outside of what the culture or the music industry has dominated this imagery as, um, which is also what this practice is all about, is trying to shake that up and, and displace it in a way and just feel like this, this instrument has been around almost 100 years now and if anything, it's still the only playback technology that has survived the test of time. It's still relevant to this day. I see turntables in every city in the world. You don't see that with cassettes. You don't see that with CDs. Mm -hmm. You have the CDJs sometimes, with, but you want it for USBs. No one's really playing with CDs anymore. And, that's something that I'm always really impressed with the, with the machinery itself, and I think it's why I'm always so drawn to it. And I, I think that's something that when children come up to it, especially since they didn't grow up with it, I, I think that immediately flipping their ideas of what, of what this machinery is actually for outside of just playing something back really opens their minds. So they're like, you're not supposed to play, play broken records. And then you have them placing one broken piece on top of another. And then I'm like, OK, now listen. And then they listen. I'm like, OK, remove them. OK, let's do it again. You know, and, and it really makes them realize a visual. It makes a, a visualization of what sampling really is. But this is unintentional sampling, because I don't decide how these records break. They, br they break how they decide. They were very patient. They, d they did a really great job. And, and they listened. Um, so I, I hope they walk away now thinking that DJing is more than just pop culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, some of the best feedback we got was about that, um, you know, having um, the kids come up and be a part of it because it is about 
the next generation kind of learning something new and being exposed to something new. And I think that's also why we even put this on yeah. is to expose Memphis and, you know, the next generation to something different to make them think differently about what a DJ is. Like you no, when, when it, uh, her and her mom walked up, I was like, uh, you know, I said hi. And then they're like, oh, Maria Chavez. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, okay. Yeah, you know, and then, um, but it just, it, like, it was so inspiring to see that, you know, like, you know, and the mom, the mom, that she found this for her. I always try to prioritize when they bring their daughters and give them, like, VIP time. And in, in Austin, too, I had a kid, like, sitting right there, and then she joined me for one. So it, it's it's becoming a lot more common in my in my concerts. If there's children around, just bring them up. Yeah. But I think, I think just... I just want to say just artistically, um, the thing that I really love about working with Christina and following Christina's work is that it's similar to my own practice, whereas she's working with the oldest instrument in, hum you know, in human history, and she's still re redeveloping it and working on it, and sometimes using poetry, sometimes just doing throat work. Like, it's, it's, it's such an organic and um, yet innovative approach of, of vocal work, and I think putting her in this situation where she could actually really play with the space just with her voice um, also highlighted the architecture of that space too, but without any amplification, because it it is an amplifier. The stairwell is one, and so I, I really appreciate it. your voice to these limits um so to so to say like going from guitar to that or were you doing both i was doing i was doing both i was always singing and playing guitar since i started um and uh but i started concentrating on voice in the past five years i've been wanting to do it for a long time and it was a, it was a question of getting to the point really where I was, you know, willing to risk. I'm, I'm in a weird situation, I'm in a weird in-between situation because I play a lot in, in so-called rock clubs or rock formats or with other groups that are considered, you know, rock music. And also Charlotte Lampadies is rock music sometimes, you know. <laughs> um, so... It was, a, it was a question of, like, in what situations am I willing to do this? Am I willing to do this everywhere, just in certain places? And I got, kind of got to the point where I, I said to myself, I don't care anymore. I'm just going to do it um, when I want to and if I feel comfortable, when I feel like it. And I just started getting to the point where I just started doing it more and more. So, but I don't know if I consider it pushing... I have to think about it, pushing it to its limits, because I never want to do anything that um, that hurts my voice. But you know, there's there's a because there are vocal artists that just focus on vocal technique, yeah, yeah. and so and that's that's not yeah, yeah. You're you're a lot more organic and poetic and in a different way. That's that I don't really see very often. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely not centered on vocal technique for no. What would you say you centered it 
if if I had to say anything, I would it would be um, trying to uh, trying to be re trying to it's it's almost like a re realist, like how do people think? How do what do people feel? And how um, ambiguous that is, and how like you know how strange and floating and changing that all is how like your state of mind how if you really think about how you think it's not it's not um easy to explain what are you thinking about you can you can pick something but you're you're choosing something to highlight yeah. and so it's so more more the center would be more like psychological and emotional so, so how did the first, um, I'm trying to think, seven hours in Memphis inspire you for your performance <laughs> on Thursday night? Yeah. Uh, was it the lemongrass tofu or <laughs> The architecture. Super. <laughs> well, you both use um, improvisation um, a lot, and especially together. And can you talk about your use of chance too, and coincidence, and how that kind of works into your practice? And then, if that was influenced by anyone, or if you followed any other um, artists that use a similar technique, or uh, for me, chance is the driving force of all of the work, especially how it's grown and changed and evolved over time, with the installation pieces or having the spaces speak to me instead of me going in there with intention. Um, I, think, I think that's what keeps my, my passion in, in flame, I guess. Because you, know? <laughs> like you, you really can't predict the future, and this is such a presence-based practice to improvise. And in a way, it, I, I hate to say meditation, because I, I am very active within that moment. It's just sometimes... It, it happens so quickly and so organically that you know I can't really remember how it happened. I just know that it could that it it can exist, and um, so it's definitely something that has intrigued me and kept me involved uh, with this work for uh, the entirety of my career. I mean, just improvising on a turntable was by chance. It was you know a chance encounter with. Dave, mm -hmm. who then invited me to improvise, and then a chance moment where then I made the choice from the chance to do it, and that was the first step. And then mm -hmm. I just kept saying yes to chance, and from from that, my it, chance is totally responsible for my whole career, really. Did you always uh, start out playing broken records, then, or how did you evolve into um, that? I think I think I did um, a few a few months in, or maybe a few weeks in. I think first it was all about needle ma manipulation because that was the first contact point that turned. That's how they work, you know. Right. 
Um, and then I moved on from needle manipu manipulation to uh, material manipu manipulation. And then I went through a phase of just ruining things on my own, melting things and putting stuff on it, only to learn that implements are silly because time is the best implement, in my opinion, especially with vinyl. It's this hidden language of surface area scratches that are really beautiful and haunting, and if you interact with it, then it, it's not an organic, growing, staticky sound. Um, it feels very ghostly, I don't know. I feel like if I interact with it, I, I'm kind of... I'm interrupting time, you know, and trying to interject my own ideas. And so, yeah, I, the the records themselves also had their own time to evolve. And now everything is by chance, like how I break things, how my shards are. There's one shard that I have hung on to since I think since mm -hmm. I since we've met. Um, it's almost ten years, and I still improvise with it all the time. And I still get, it's always a similar piece, but it, you never know exactly how it's going to sound. And it's something that you can own for such a long time that still creates its own moments, that to me, is, it's, it's such a valuable uh, material to have. And there's no way I would have known of its value had I not broken it in the first place. So, <laughs> process. Habitation à bon marché, les yeux. Ambassadeur de feu. Chacun interroge. Chacun interroge. Ambassadeur de feu. Chacun interroge. Joindre la journée. I don't know. I mean, you know, when you. I. You know. When I was a teenager, I read a lot about art and music and blah, blah, blah. And chance was always a real big part of right, 20th century innovation. Right. And, uh, but I, I, have a diff I have a little bit more, I kind of feel like I'm, the, the important part is like that, that I'm always the sort of deciding. So at the concert, just uh, some people started sort of like mimicking my singing and mim mimicking my voice and started laughing. And so, you know, it's just like, I don't know why, I just felt like, well, I'll just start laughing with them. So, but, you know, so that was chance, but the really important part was with the reaction to it. Mm -hmm. So. The daring, it was so daring. Because you incorporated them, but still putting them in their place within it. So, I, yeah, I think chance is really, chance occurrences are very cool. Um, but I sort of always look at it like I'm still ultimately in control. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess one of the things I wanted to know, too, just for both of you is... Um, the live versus recording. So I think you've recorded some stuff and, and you record, of course. And so live performances versus knowing that something is being, you know, put down, I guess, not technically, but maybe forever, you know. How do you approach those two things, I mean, in, in your mind? I mean, I know you would approach them differently as a, you know, physically getting ready, but like in your mind. Well, I have a problem with permanent sound with my own turntables in practice. I really believe in this process of present present space. Like I don't I don't rehearse or practice at home. 
Like I only play in front of people, mm-hmm. but I also perform like like twice a week, you know? And so I feel like that is the practice, is just the performance. And if it's a bad show, it's that's the show. Like that, there's nothing you can really do. Mm-hmm. Because it's not about being good or bad, it's just about continuously following these steps and just seeing where the work takes itself. Um, So I haven't released or recorded anything in a studio since 2004. So technically my entire career is like based on a, on a myth, on word of mouth. And um, if you think about it, there's no one else in the scene that's ever done that before. Um, and I still, I mean, I have recordings available uh, and vi- live video um, available on YouTube, but everything is free. Like everything on my SoundCloud you can download today. Have it. It's yours. I, I don't think participating in this side of the music industry is really what this work is about because it's not music to me it's sculpture it's it's something else it's vibration sculpture and um and then integrating chants and installation blah so to me I don't really feel the pressure of participating in music industry in this way and I always get invited to make albums and to do things and I do have some projects in the work, but it's always going around the rule of the album. So instead of it being a turntablism album of me and my my sounds that I do live, but now I'm in a studio and I'm all, you know, enclosed and you're capturing, hunting my sounds for good moments. It's Instead, it's, it's working around it and um, I'm starting to improvise and collaborate with people that, ha- uh, uh, that have lo- large uh, vinyl discographies and then um, they give me the albums that they want me to ruin, and so I only perform their albums with them, and I don't use my own vocabulary. And then that becomes an LP of the performance. That, to me, is a cooler way of abusing this album structure that has been embedded in our minds. That is the only way that sound can be distributed. You know, I think that's really short-sighted and boring frankly I, you know it's it's hard for me to listen to albums I, I really feel sad for the artists they're stuck in this cage you know I'd rather see them live and mm-hmm. so that's my relationship with it you in that manner because I know that she approached in a similar way that she wanted these things to be accessible um, to the public to where anybody could approach them but did she have no I didn't really realize that she was yeah like the the poems or the the exercises um, that anyone can be a performer and um, I didn't really know about that stuff until much later this really was a choice based on an experience. Of, it was my first album um, that I ever released with this Houston-based noise label called Pitch Phase. Um, 
and I released an album with them called Those Eyes of Hers. It was only 300 CDs, uh, 12 short pieces, um, and the whole time, and two turntables that time. I, I, I don't know why I even thought that was a good idea, because two turntables is too many. I, it's really one turntable that you can hone in and focus on making a smart piece instead of managing mechanics with two things, you know? And so when I was in the studio, I just, like I said, I, I just felt hunted. I felt like I was just being watched for like good moments. And I was like, I'm not a monkey. This isn't what this is about. I'm not trying to make something good to sell. And that was when I was like, okay, I, this isn't. And then everyone thought I was crazy. All the boys told me I was stupid, that I wasn't gonna last, but now they're not around and I'm still around. So. Who knows, maybe, maybe they're right, we'll see. <laughs> Wonder why you fade so soon Hearts are broken when you die Honeymoon The only thing I think significant difference between recording and uh, playing live for me is the energy of the audience. It's so, so obvious, you know. Um, but you know, you know, I've recorded a bunch of different ways. Don't always record the same way. Sometimes I record completely live. Sometimes it's you know traditional overdub kind of thing. Um, and I've been never. With very 95% of the time, I've recorded at home or in a home-like environment. Um, so the main thing is like you, that energy of playing live is so intense, and uh, you know you can't you cannot replicate it. It's valuable. It's very valuable. Yeah, no worries. Um, <laughs> it's a crazy weekend, Memphis. You guys are crazy. <laughs> yeah, I love it. It was great. Well, good. I'm glad that you had a good time here. Thank you so much for coming. I really want to come back and, and focus more on this building. That's Hopefully we can do something in the future. I really enjoyed my time here. Memphis is rad. Thank you so much for having us. Awesome. Thank you. I love the way she smiles. I love the way she smiles. I love the way she smiles. I love the way she. I love. I love. I love. I love. I love the way she smiles. She smiles. I love the way she smiles. This has been an independent production produced by Amy S. and Chris Williams. Check us out at sonosphere.podcast.com. Subscribe on iTunes and check us out on SoundCloud. Thanks for listening. <laughs>